Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do that, do those. For even sinners love those who love you. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But you but love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure you give will be measured, will be measured, will be the measure you get back. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I am not John. I would just like to, while we have the tall boy, we're talking about him, let's just say a big thank you to John for assigning this passage to me. Um, This, I don't have support for this, but this is what it feels like. That Luke, as he's compiling his gospel, is recalling this sermon on the plane that we've been hearing about, right? This alleged good news, right? And he, and he starts writing it down, and he starts, oh, remember that other thing that Jesus said? And he just puts it all together. And so we have this, we have this collection of sayings, this sermon of Jesus, which creates an unenviable task for the preacher. Because A, it's Jesus that said it, and B, it's already a sermon, all right? Tamara suggested this morning I should just read it and mic drop and walk off. But since we're here, right? Yeah, so thanks a lot, John, for uh, having me preach this. There are so many things that I would just like to omit from this scripture. Amen? I mean, have you ever, just as we read the Word of God, had those moments where we'd say, oh, why did you have to say that? Because when we read the Word of God, it judges us, doesn't it? It, it, it makes us confess the difference between what God is doing and what we are up to. And this passage is just loaded with one after another things that I just wish Jesus would not have said. And so this morning, the the difficulty and and the genuine challenge is really trying to take all of the things that we could do and visit and talk about and unpack and do it in 55 minutes, which is what time John said that he usually takes, right? That's about how much time I have? No. And so how do we get into all of this when, frankly, I would just rather not deal with some of it? 
it's a little overwhelming. And so this morning, I, I hope that you'll just allow me to be me. Um, it's a little intimidating to look out and see people that have forgotten more about theology and scripture than you can ever hope to learn in a lifetime, right? That's okay. I'm just going to be me. So I'm going to give you my look at things. I'm going to tell you a few stories and hope somehow in all of that God will inhabit it and will be better for people for being here today. Good. We get used to at our house the sound of Bennett sort of narrating his videos down the hall. One of the beautiful gifts of autism, at least in his particular case, is that he can quote vast vast amounts of dialogue from television shows, cartoons, all his favorite things. And so periodically it's a little strange because he'll throw in a quote from somewhere and you're not expecting it. And so I've heard him on more than one occasion be in the other room and then then in the perfect character voice go, oh, that's going to leave a mark. And we've all seen those memes that, that are associated with that phrase, oh, that's going to leave a mark. And, and typically, it kind of is centered around those moments where, where some epic fail has happened or where somebody is getting punched in the face, right? It's going to leave a mark. And today, the, these words of Jesus kind of confront us a little bit, don't they? They're intended probably to smack us in the face a little bit, and my hope is that it will, in fact, leave a mark on us today. And so as we get into this passage of Scripture this morning, I have to to kind of ask the question, why is it so hard to receive these words? For me, I'm not saying it is for you. We're going to just talk about why it is that it's so difficult to receive these words. And, And I think that for myself, part of the reason is this. We've been talking about this season of good news. That yet when we receive the gospel, when we surrender ourselves to the gospel and to the making the kingdom of God a reality in this world, as we give ourselves to that, what we discover is that it is often painful. That there's this huge disconnect between the kingdom and the empire and we, found ourse- we find ourselves in the struggle and the tension of those two things together. And it is difficult. And so often I find myself saying, how much longer is this going to continue? It is good, though, to know that I'm not the only person that struggled with this. The psalmist in our psalm reading this morning said, uh, in moments like these, right, when this is what it feels like and what it looks like, that maybe this is the question that we can ask. The psalmist says, do not fret. Because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so that you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, what I hear when I, when I read these words, at least in my hearing of it, is just hang on because there's a reward that's coming someday. Here's the challenge that I have. I want the reality of the kingdom in the immediate. I want it now. I I have this idea of the kingdom in my head. I have this idea of the kingdom in my heart, and I'm giving myself to it, and I'm serving, and I'm seeking to make all of those things known. And yet there are times, just to be brutally honest, that I don't want to wait for someday because the pain in the immediate seems to be too much. 
And so it's difficult. Because the truth is that we want good news that comes to us that brings hope in the midst of pain. Is that right? Am I the only one that that says, man, if there's good news, I'm all about there being something shining that we're moving towards that's out there. But sometimes I just want the kingdom of God to come and transform the right now and the immediate. When I'm getting punched in the face, when life is difficult. So here it is. Like it or not, right? We don't get to to pick and choose. Like it or not, Jesus begins and kind of wraps up a major portion of this passage by saying, love your enemies. I would just like to say, thanks Jesus for that, right? Love your enemies. Pastor Zach this morning said, God's mind about you is made up and the news is what? I leaned over to Jason and asked this question. What if we too are called to make up our minds about others? What if? Maybe what if that's the kind of thing that Jesus is imagining when he says love your enemies? And, and let's, let's be clear. Jesus, this is not some kind of moralized understanding of enemies. We, we often include our opposites and our irritants, right? And we, so it is easy for us when we hear turn the other cheek and all of these kinds of things. We kind of hear it in the context of, of momentary sort of inconveniences, irritants. But let's be clear, when Jesus uses the, this word enemy, he really is talking about those that would revile us, those that would destroy us given the opportunity. This is life and death stuff. And so when he says, love your enemies, we need to pay attention. Because I think Jesus has more in mind than just an intellectual commitment to loving the other. Oh, we can do that so well. We can get our theology in line and we can talk a really great love game. But what Jesus is imagining is somehow putting Flesh on that where it matters the most, not where it's easy, not where it's clean, but where it is messy and where it is painful. You see what Jesus is proposing in these really difficult to receive verses is love that is purposeful and intentional that also takes action. I got to be really honest. That is just not the Jesus that I want. This is a little more, when he talks about praying for those who abuse you, this is more what I have in mind. Lord, please grant me the ability to punch people over the internet. Right? That's what I want. I don't Facebook, but I lurk and watch, and I sometimes just want to punch people. And that's, to be honest, That's the prayer that I want to pray. This is the Jesus that I want. Or maybe it's one that looks like this. Bulky, handsome, strong, and violent Jesus. If you can't read it, it says he died for your sins. Now it's your turn, right? That's the Jesus that I want. 
Because sometimes I just get tired of waiting for the kingdom payoff that's out there somewhere. I want the kingdom to come and kick Heine right here and now. That's what I want. And so it's, that's the tension for me as I hear these words of Jesus. Because clearly, I think there's a couple of things that seem to be pulling at one another. And I just want to put this out there right from the beginning. That what Jesus would articulate here is a no-tolerance policy for retribution. I'll just, that's, that's true. It's not a trick question. It's true. But the second part is that he also has a no-tolerance policy for abuse. And so we hear this and we're like, this is all strange. But recognize that at the beginning of the passage it says, to those that hear. Jesus is speaking to people for whom this message makes no sense outside. And so he doesn't have a plan for people that are abusers. He is speaking to people who are broken, who are being defamed, who are being reviled. And he's saying to them, rather than simply long for retribution, there's another way. And that's what Jesus is describing here. It's just not always the Jesus that I want. And so as we, as we get into this passage and as we begin to hear him say things like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate, bless those who curse. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to take your coat, give them your, your, your shirt as well. If those that beg from you, and if anyone takes your stuff, give it willingly without hope for return. As, as I hear those kinds of things, it, it's a little hard to swallow because it takes love from the abstract to the absolute real action. Oh, it's hard, Jason. It's hard because this is the Jesus that I want. I, I want vindication, I want rescue. I want restoration. I want justice. So I don't really want to hear love your enemy. Because to be truthful, these words, at least in my hearing, sound a little bit backwards. And, and yet what Jesus is doing is he's confronting injustice and saying there is a way to respond that in fact recognizes and restores dignity without retribution. And that's the radical thing that he's doing here, right? Because we make it kind of a binary choice between the kingdom and the empire, don't we? And it's a, it becomes a zero-sum game sometimes when we are just facing persecution and pain and we're getting punched in the face and we're getting punched in the mouth and we long for this kind of Jesus. It is because we are, in my opinion, putting God in the horns of this dilemma to say we get the fact that your kingdom has come, we get the fact that, that we are to love one another, but right now I need you to set this right. And if you don't, it may not be real at all, right? Those are those dark prayers that we utter in our heart. 
And yet what Jesus is saying as he confronts all of this is that there is a way for us to live in the power of the kingdom, to live in the dignity as sons and daughters of God through all of this adversity. You see, kingdom people simply don't reciprocate or retaliate. Look what he says. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. There are some great sort of looks at what this could mean. It's a way of sort of flipping the script on the powers that be, right? Sort of laying bare the inequity and injustice of it all by going the extra mile or continuing to insist on our dignity. I mean, there's all of this that's happening in here. What Jesus is essentially saying to us is that we can, in fact, as we are willing to forgive, as we are willing to learn to be generous, that what we can do is, without reciprocating, we are, in fact, encountering the powers of a broken world and doing so in such a way that it is, in fact, the means through which God restores in the immediate That's just the part I don't want to sign up for. You say, what does it look like? I'll tell you a quick story. So several years ago, I went to middle school camp at Camp Bond. If you haven't been there, you should. Middle school camp. And so one of the traditions, at least at that time, was to create this elaborate game for one of the, the nights near the end. And essentially, all, it always has an elaborate set of rules, an elaborate scheme, an elaborate backstory with all kinds of certain things. But basically, here's the end of the game. Get all of the students outside, have them roam around, crawl around in the grass for about three hours, run until they are tired so that hopefully they'll go back to their dorms and go to sleep. There really is no purpose to the end. Rarely is there a winner, but it is this complex kind of game that's played. And so in this particular game, there was some sort of backstory about how all the kids were at one end of the camp and they had to to sneak around and try to find all of the adults who were hiding in plain sight. And there were no lights, and the adults had flashlights. And when the student would come, uh, if you could shine your light on them, you froze them, and you got to take away one of their little bracelets, which was life. And when they ran out of those, they had to go back and try to get more. It was essentially a game that they could never win. And for a while, it was amazing, right? So we sat there at this with this big flashlight, and we would watch kids. You know, lots of, lots of them would just do the direct assault and just run, and you would shine a light on them, and down they'd go. But then you would see in the moonlight this, this some stealthy middle school kid, army crawling on his elbows and knees, taking 20 minutes to get to you across the field. And you let him get right up next to you, and then you shine the light and break his heart, Right? And after a while, it was sort of fun for a while, right? So I'm collecting all of these wristbands that represent life. It was amazing. I mean, I've got all, I'm just hoarding all this life. And, and, and the response for the kids, it was actually sort of funny after a while. You'd shine a light on them and they'd go, oh, right? And I remember at one point I thought, well, this is no fun. There's no point to this. So the next time that I let one of those kids crawl up and I shined a light, And they went to give me their wristband. I said, here, I tell you what, here's two more. Keep playing. And off they went. And I thought, oh, 
that was pretty good. I've got all these wristbands and all this life. And so, you know what? Every student that came up, I would, instead of ending their life, would extend it and say, go keep playing. Here's some extra life. Go do your thing. And it began to catch on. And I heard somebody else down the way doing it. And the game hardly never ended. And what was happening is that we were throwing the whole system into turmoil by introducing grace into the system. And I think that's what Jesus is imagining here. That we need not be bound to responding in kind by punching somebody back in the face. That we can be so radical in our distribution of grace and mercy and forgiveness that it begins to set things in motion that confront the powers of a broken world and begin to set restoration in process. And I think that's what Jesus is envisioning here. And yet we are reminded that always the empire seems just as present. Recall my first pastoral review. That's an exciting thing. Basically, for those of you who don't know, pastors every few years are called together with their church board and your boss, the district superintendent, and you get to go into a meeting in which everybody gets to weigh in on how they feel about you. And so I'll I'll never forget the prophetic words of my district superintendent there in Texas. He said, listen, it should be fine. As long as nobody comes with an agenda, it should go smoothly. He was a prophet because somebody did come with an agenda. In fact, in that uncomfortable, awkward silence for the first 10 seconds when he says, okay, who would like to start? And nobody says anything because you're all being kind, waiting for somebody else to talk. Somebody said, well, if nobody else is going to speak, I've got a few things to say. When you're in a meeting to review your performance, that's never a great thing to hear, by the way. And what followed was about a 15-minute diatribe of vitriol and accusations. It was one of the most painful experiences of my entire life. It was sort of like throwing a grenade into the room, right? Here we are to talk about kingdom stuff, and then this happens. And I'll never forget what he said. He looked around at people that eyes were a little wide with shock and awe, and he said, well, but that's just me. I'm just a corporate guy. That's how we do it in the world. And so we get on board and we get excited when preachers get up and we talk about building the kingdom, but we are reminded that the empire is powerful, Jason, and it's always present. So how do we respond to that, right? I mean, I, I like, this, I like the, the latter portion of this passage because it mentions things like reward, right? So I think in my simple brain, okay, let's just figure out whatever we have to do to get through the moment so that we get to the reward at least, right? And so here's what I wonder. I wonder if, he's, if we should just put our love face on, right? Have you ever had to do this? Just smile and just say, oh, I just love everybody. I'm just going to grit my teeth and love people, even if it's difficult. But Jesus just, he just won't leave well enough alone here, will he? I mean, look what he says. He says, if you love those that love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those 
who love them. This isn't just about sort of putting our love face on, that, that even our enemies can do that. It also would be easy for us to say, oh, there's a reward. Let's just figure this out, for our reward will be great, and we'll be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Guys, this whole turn the other cheek, love your enemy, is not some stealthy way to have Jesus' offense against the world. It's not some way for us to outmaneuver the enemy and bring about their defeat. What Jesus is envisioning here is for us to realize that we are loved by a heavenly Father that loves our enemy in the same way. Ouch. That could leave a mark. And that's what he's envisioning. You see... We can love, we can be called to love that takes action simply because God is a God of mercy and has claimed all of creation as his own. That's the justification for being called to this radical kind of love. Man, I, I'm, I have to think in pictures. Like, what does that look like? If you've never attended a Special Olympics in Oklahoma if you want to know what I think heaven will be like, go there and check it out. And here's what I love about being a participant, being a spectator at Special Olympics. You go and you, initially you are aware that there are a lot of broken people. There are people with missing limbs. There are people with deformities. There are people that need all kinds of aid in every manner of mobility. There's all of this stuff. There's physical disabilities, there are cognitive impairments, there's all of this stuff. And so initially you are aware of it, but something strange happens is that, is that all of that brokenness is no longer concealed, it is on full display, and that somehow we begin to celebrate not the accomplishment, not the impairment, but we celebrate the person. I think... That's what Jesus is saying, is that, that envisioning this opportunity where there is no longer people that are broken and people that are not. There's just children of God. And so Jesus calls us then to make some very specific changes. When you go to Special Olympics, the first thing that you have is sympathy, Right? Oh, that's so sad. And yet what Jesus is calling us to do to this radical kind of love response, he says a couple of pretty clear imperatives. A, you should stop judging. And, and remember, he is speaking to those of us who are listening to the kingdom. Folks, it is easy for us to nestle into our kingdom theology and begin to opine all those poor, uninformed souls who haven't figured it out yet. And so Jesus says, do not judge. And really what he means is don't decide who is so broken that they are beyond hope. 
Don't put yourself in the position to determine who is beyond the reach of the kingdom. I wish that he hadn't said that, Aaron. Because when I watch the news at night, I'm pretty sure I have a list of folks that might just be beyond redemption. And Jesus says, stop. You see, what I think Jesus is envisioning here is learning to see with the same extravagant grace that he sees us with. Think about that. That loving our enemy is nothing less than seeing with hopeful possibility that which is still redeemable even amongst the most broken. Wow. That's a tough one. Let me tell you a quick story about what this might actually look like. The year is 1991, Lincoln, Nebraska. And there's a guy named Michael Weiser who takes a job, moves to Lincoln, Nebraska, and he's a, a song leader. He's a cantor at the Jewish synagogue in Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, this is Michael today. He was a little bit younger then in 1991. And so he moves his family to serve this Jewish synagogue, and in their first week, they begin to get hate mail in the mailbox, and then they begin to get hate messages on their answering machine. So let me pause for a moment for all of you college students. An answering machine is a device <laughs> that connects to a telephone, which we used to have in our homes. And you walk in, and there's a blinking light that says somebody is thinking of you. And so you push the button to hear the voice of the person that's thinking of you. And when they would hear these messages, it was spewing all of this hateful speech. I hope you die, you Jewish scum. It was terrifying. They went to the police. So somebody is calling us and somebody is contacting us. And they said, well, more than likely, it's this guy named Larry Trapp. So this is Larry. Larry just happened to be the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan for the state of Nebraska. Don't you know? And in fact, Larry was sort of suspicion, had been implicated in some acts of violence. I mean, so this was a real incredible threat. This wasn't just opposites and irritants. This was real life stuff, Jason. And so he would continue to call and leave messages and send hateful mail. And so his wife said, that's it. I'm going to go do something about this. And she got ready to march out the door and cooler heads prevailed, right? Like this is at my house. I sometimes wouldn't tell Melu about bad things that happened at the church because I was afraid I would have to defend the people that were doing the bad stuff because my wife would go take their heads off, right? But cooler heads prevailed. And so Michael decided to do something about it. He decided to respond. And so he, he got a hold of Larry's phone number, right? And every Thursday morning at 10 o'clock a.m., he would call and he would leave messages of love for Larry. Larry, 
There's a lot of love happening in our household and in our synagogue. Wouldn't you like to be part of that? Larry, I know that you are disabled and and you are blind. The people that you are representing would not accept you. But we will. Thursday morning after Thursday morning after Thursday morning for months. One day he and his wife had a conversation. Have you ever called somebody, by the way, to leave a voicemail and they accidentally pick up? They had the conversation. What are we going to say if Larry picks up? And his wife said, who by this time had come to a better place, said, why don't you offer to do something nice for him? So some weeks went by and the inevitable happened. It was a Thursday morning and before the answering machine message could even get all the way through, an angry voice on the other end said, this is Larry, why do you keep calling me? And Michael said, I know that you're disabled and you're in a wheelchair and it must be really difficult to get out of your house. And I just wondered if you ever needed anyone to take you to the grocery store. There was silence and then a flustered voice on the other end of the line said, I I think I've got it under control. Click. Some more weeks went by. Thursday after Thursday after Thursday. Larry, there's a lot of love happening here. Wouldn't you like to be part of it? So one day, the phone rang. Michael picked it up. You know, the other end was Larry. But this time, Larry said, I've been rethinking And I want to leave my life as I know it behind. And I don't know how. Can you help? So Michael and his wife decided to go to his house. They called some friends and said, listen, if we're not back in two hours, please call the police. Here's where we're going to (laughs) be. They rummaged. They said, well, we, we have to take him a gift. So they, they rummaged through and they found a ring, a, a silver ring, and it had intertwined, uh, intertwined branches on it. And they said, well, we'll just give it, we don't know what else, let's just take this as a gift. And so the Weissers went to Larry's house. They opened the door to the apartment and slung over a hook in the back of the door was an automatic weapon. And on the walls were posters of all kinds of hatred and all kinds of propaganda about white supremacy. And there was Larry, blind, missing a limb, confined to a wheelchair. And he reached out to them and they took his hands and he had these big rings with swastikas and all of those kinds of things on it. And he said, please help me take these off. He took them off. They offered a ring of friendship. Folks, we want the kingdom to take effect in the immediacy of the moment, do we not? And so often, we want it to happen when we get the the nasty phone call or the angry Facebook post 
right? And yet here's a family that somehow offers the extravagant love of God day after day after day after day. See, I would argue that every time that they received that painful phone call and responded in love, the kingdom was already there. A few months went by and they discovered that Larry was terminally ill. And so the Weissers did what made the most sense. They moved Larry into their home. And they cared for him until his last day. And during that time, not only were they restored in relationship and in friendship, but Larry became a person of faith. So I wonder today, what would it look like for you and I to stop asking the kingdom to be something that fixes everything in the immediate and begin to allow others to be seen with that hopeful imagination the way that God sees them and then to begin to realize that when we make space for grace that the kingdom that we long for is present already in that moment. What would that look like? Walter Wink has a quote, and he says this, In the final analysis, then, love of enemies is trusting God for the miracle of divine forgiveness. If God can forgive, redeem, and transform me, I must also believe that God can work such wonders with anyone. Love of enemies is seeing one's oppressors through the prisms of the reign of God, not only as they are now, but also as they can become, transformed by the power of God. Now, if you've been listening, and I hope you have, you've just figured out that this is bigger than us. This is not possible to grit our teeth and do on our own. So fortunately, God comes alongside us and offers us grace that is sufficient. Like those that are going to be helping us serve to come this morning to begin to prepare the elements. And as our servers come, I want you to begin to think about the Lord's Supper in a couple of ways this morning. First is this, we come in gratitude and thanksgiving. Receiving this grace that saw us with imagination and hopeful possibility, that loved extravagantly to the point of being broken and poured out for us. But as you receive it today, understand that not only is this empowerment to make the kingdom known, but it also becomes then the posture through which we change the world by people, by becoming people that are willing to be broken 
poured out to see the kingdom become a reality here and now. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples, trying to articulate to them this new way of being alive that was possible through him. So he took bread, redefined it, gave thanks for it, and gave it to them and said, eat in remembrance of me. He took the cup, the cup of the hoped-for redemption and redefined it as a new covenant in his blood. Today as these elements, as you partake of them, we are receiving the sustenance of God to continue to offer grace and mercy even in the midst of pain. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would take these elements, common things, and that you would use them for your sacred purpose. And so, Lord, as we partake, as we receive, Lord, may it be with full hearts at what, uh, Lord, at the mystery of what you are doing in us, but, Lord, may it also be a call to do the same for our enemy, our opposite, our irritants. So, Lord, may it also not just be a meal of grace, but may it, Lord, be something that, that leaves a mark on us. Help us, Lord, as we come. We are open to what must change in us in order to see our enemy with hopeful imagination. Pray in your name. This morning, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. You'll move down the road to the left and come forward. You'll have bread pressed into your hand, which will be representative of the body of Christ broken for you, the cup, blood that was shed for you. But as you come this morning, come in prayerfulness and openness to the surprising grace and mercy of God.